We've been in a series of sermons on the Psalms this summer, and we have been looking at various emotions and what we learn about the human condition from the Psalms. This morning, we're going to take up the emotion of spiritual dryness, spiritual darkness, spiritual depression. It's technically called depression, writes biblical counselor Ed Welch, but it can't be captured by a word. You feel numb, yet your head hurts, empty, yet inside there are screams, fatigue, yet fears abound. Things that were once pleasures now barely hold your attention. Your brain feels like it's in a fog. You feel weighted down. Do you remember when you had goals, things that you look forward to? They could have been as small as going to a movie on Friday night or a job you wanted to accomplish. Now you have very few goals. Making it through the day seems like enough. But every day is the same. There is no rhythm of rising anticipation, satisfaction, then rest. Each day brings a dreadful monotony, and you fear that tomorrow will be the same as today. The flatness of life feels like it is killing you. Sleep, it's a mess. You can't get enough. You don't even remember when it feels like what it feels like to wake up refreshed. Have you ever seen Pablo Picasso's paintings from his blue period? The pictures are not encouraging, but if you take a look, you would at least find that you're not alone. Triggered by a difficult relationship, Picasso did a series of paintings where people looked lifeless and everything was in shades of blue and gray. Was he putting his feelings into art, or was he faithfully presenting the world as he actually saw it? Either way, there are no sun-splashed days with depression, just dreary, overcast skies and a dull, colorless world. And then Welch concludes with this. Picasso wasn't the only one who struggled with what has come to be known as depression. Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon, missionary David Brainerd, and Bible translator J.B. Phillips were some of the more well-known and accomplished people who talked and wrote about their struggles. So if you are depressed, you may feel alone, but consider the fact that many have walked the path before, and many are walking it now. And in fact, this morning, we are going to walk the path with the psalmist in Psalm 42. We're going to look at this psalm under three points. We want to understand the condition of depression. Number two, we want to determine the causes of depression. And number three, we want to apply the cures to depression. So understanding the condition, describing the causes, and then applying the cure. First of all, understanding the condition, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, the psalmist knows God. He has a relationship with God, and yet he doesn't sense God. It is possible to be a Christian and struggle deeply with discouragement, depression, and difficulty. Deer aren't stupid. 
although it may seem that way when they run out in front of us and on the interstate, but they're not stupid. They don't wait till they get thirsty and then go, oh, let's go get some water. A panting deer goes down to the stream that he's always gone down to, but this time the stream is dry. What the psalmist is saying is, I am the deer. I go to God to quench my thirst. I'm not waiting to be thirsty before I go to God. I go to God again and again and again and again. And this time, it doesn't seem like he's hearing me. It doesn't seem like he's answering me. He goes as a panting deer, as a, as a deer who wants his thirst quenched, and he finds the brook dry. God is the dry brook. The psalmist has lost the conscious presence of God. He's lost the relational experience of God. What was once sweet to him no longer resonates with him. All that's in his soul is drought and dryness and deadness, distance, darkness. Jonathan preached a couple of weeks ago on Psalm 32, and we read there of David struggling with his guilt over his sin, and he talks about how his bones were wasting away and how he was drying up. Sometimes in the Psalms, our spiritual dryness, our spiritual drought, our spiritual darkness, our spiritual depression is linked to our guilt. It's linked to the fact that we've sinned. But there's no evidence of that in this Psalm. This man has done nothing wrong. He hasn't sinned against God. He hasn't run away from God. In fact, he's run to God over and over and over and over again. And yet, this darkness, this depression, this drought has come upon him. We tend to think, as American Christians, that if something is wrong spiritually, we're to blame. And we can tend to minister to each other that way. Spiritual dryness, though, can happen without doing anything wrong. It can come upon you as though it was out of nowhere. And you need to know that. And you need this sermon to understand how to handle that. New Christians, let me say a word to you. Many, some of you in this, in this auditorium this morning are, are newer to the faith, maybe haven't been a Christian for very long. You don't get taught this when you become a Christian. You will come to Christ and there is an initial enthusiasm and joy and liberation and sense of purpose and a sense of closeness to God like you have never enjoyed before. And you should feel that because your alienation to God has just been removed through the cross of Christ. And you have come to Christ and you are now at peace with God. His wrath is no longer upon you. The penalty that your sins deserve are no longer obligated to you, but rather you've been set free from them and you're enjoying that newfound freedom. But months, years into your Christian faith, you meet a real drought period. You go through a period of darkness and difficulty where God doesn't seem near or present, and you can be tempted to think that the whole thing that you just experienced those last two years was a complete sham. 
It was a dream. Let me tell you, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream. You were experiencing Psalm 42. And this sermon is meant to get you back on the rails when you're tempted to look at that and say, you know what? I knew that was fake. I knew it. I knew that whole God thing was a lie. So get ready, newer, newer believers. Get ready to go through a difficult spiritual drought. But older saints, older brothers and sisters who've been in the faith a little while longer, let me, let me give a word of caution to us as well. We don't typically treat this very well in ourselves nor in those to whom we minister and try to give comfort. Christian dryness can set in in ourselves or in, a, in someone we love, and we can misdiagnose it and give all the wrong counsel in the most well-intentioned ways. If we don't treat this properly, it can really throw you for a loop. I remember um, Pastor Fred Malone, some of you know him, sharing a story with me in class one time where he was talking about, he was counseling with a young woman in his church who was going through this spiritual dry period. And she came to, the, she came to Pastor Fred and said, would you please help me understand how to get out of this spiritual dryness? And she said, I'm reading Psalm 42, and I want that. I want to pant like a deer for streams, for streams of water. I want to pant after God like that. I want that kind of passion for God and that love for God. And his counsel was, her, was you are living Psalm 42 right now. See, in her mind, Psalm 42 was written for passionate Christians. Psalm 42 is not written for passionate Christians. Psalm 42 is written for depressed people. The language of a deer panting for streams of water is not the language of a person who's passionate for God. It's a person who is absent from God, who feels their need for God, who hungers for God and doesn't feel like they're hungry enough. This psalm is written for people who know God, who have walked with God, and feel far from God. That's the condition that we're talking about. It can set in at any time. It can set in unexpectedly. It can set in without us doing anything wrong. It can set in for longer or shorter periods of time. And this becomes our cry. God, I've gone down to the streams. I've gone to the Bible. I've started reading it. It's blank. I go to prayer. It feels like I'm hitting the ceiling. That's the condition. Spiritual distance, spiritual dryness, spiritual depression, spiritual darkness. And it happens to all of God's people to varying degrees. So now that we understand the condition, let's talk about the causes. This is point number two. We want to determine the causes. Now, let me say this up front before we get into these. In general, in general, these are the causal factors that tend to be associated with spiritual dryness. They're not exhaustive. They're not a one-size-fits-all, but they tend to be things that are associated or give birth to this kind of spiritual dryness. And we learn five things in this psalm that cause, that they can cause a spiritual depression to set in in our lives. 
So let me talk about these five things, these five causes. Number one is isolation. Isolation. Verse 6, would you look at verse 6 with me? My soul is cast down within me. There's the condition. A cast down soul. A sad soul. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now, that may not mean anything to you all if you don't know biblical geography. Okay? But if you notice verse 4, he talks about how he used to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. This guy was a worship leader, like Asaph was last week. And he was part of the worship team. And he would lead God's people to the house of God in Jerusalem. But he's not in Jerusalem anymore, is he? In verse 6, he's in the land of Jordan, which is north. And of Hermon and Mount Mazar, it's way north of Jerusalem. He's away from God's temple and away from God's people. He's in the north, away from the temple. And he's crying out, panting for God because he feels spiritually dry. Let me say this. Isolation from God's people and God's temple, which in the New Testament is the church of Jesus Christ, can be a cause for spiritual depression. And you say, well, I'm here every time. I gather with God's temple. I, I gather on the Lord's Day, and I'm here Sunday morning, and I'm here Sunday evening, and I'm, I try to make it to prayer meetings and things like that, but I still feel spiritually dry. We'll get to some of the other causes in a minute. But let me say this. It's possible to be in the big meeting. It's possible to be here on Sunday morning. It's possible to be here on Sunday evening and be a solo Christian. An isolated Christian. Showing up and sitting next to a believer. Showing up and hearing a sermon. Showing up and not having any sort of vital, spiritually enriching conversation and contact with another Christian is isolated Christianity. It's solo Christianity. And I will say this, you will not get away with that for very long before you're in the dumps. God has made you in his image. You are an image bearer of God, which means you're made by a God who is a community. He is a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit who has existed in all of eternity in relationship. And he made you as a relational being. And to the degree that you isolate yourself from healthy Biblically encouraging relationships, you are setting yourself up for spirit, serious spiritual drought and dryness. It's an invitation to it to come into your life. You isolate yourself from people because you're busy or you're private. You won't attend a care group meeting because you're busy or you're private, and you wonder why you're dejected and, and discomforted and upset and dark. And I'm not picking on you. I'm just asking is that present in your life? Are you too isolated? Who knows you well besides your husband or wife? Is there another man, another woman, brothers, sisters, who knows you, to whom you can open up your life? Isolation can be a cause of spiritual depression. Here's the second one. Accusation. 
accusation. Verse 3, second part. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? Or verses 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? See, you, you claim to follow God. You claim to worship God. You claim to be a Christian. Why in the world are you, where is he? Why are you so depressed? Doesn't he show up and help people? Where is he? And you get these taunts. Sometimes they come from real people. Sometimes they come from your remaining sin. And sometimes they come from Satan, or at least his cohort. Accusation. In Revelation, we know that Satan, is his main weapon is not temptation. His main weapon is accusation. He's not called the tempter of the brothers. He's called the accuser who accuses them before God day and night. And we have to learn to handle accusation well if we are going to not succumb to a a dryness of soul. Because what can happen is as we get accused and as we get reminded of who we are as a sinner, we begin to focus on that. We begin to be preoccupied with that. And that sets in on us a spiritual dryness because we start to feel, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I have sinned against God. So how do we handle that when we get those accusations, which are in fact true about us? You know, Satan and his angels are cunning. But Jared Wilson wrote an article that Jim Golly showed me called How to Sucker Punch the Devil. And here's what he writes. Satan and his angels are cunning, but they often appear more so because we in the flesh are dumb. The devil is sly, true but he's also fairly predictable. If we have our spiritual wits about us, we can disrupt him to his own startling. One maneuver we may find helpful in, in, this, in his rebuke is what is called in the, in the boxing world rope-a-dope. Muhammad Ali was a great practitioner of the rope-a-dope technique, which basically involves appearing to place oneself in a losing position that is actually a step toward the upper hand. Ali would lean against the ropes suffering assorted blows from his opponents, tiring them out, which would put them in a precarious condition when Ali was ready to bounce back up. This is how he defeated heavyweight Titan George Foreman. He tired Foreman out on the ropes and then was able to come back. So when Satan comes to accuse, go rope-a-dope with him. First, agree with him on the facts. Yes, you are right. I'm a terrible sinner. He will not expect this and may mistake it for his advantage. While he is for an instant struck dumb, then quickly crack him with the gospel. While he's reeling from your feigned submission, which does you or the faith no harm, as agreeing to facts is not a sin, he will be open for this crushing blow. The name of Christ proclaimed in the gospel power is a haymaker. One little word shall fell him. So here's a, here I'm going to give you two examples of this sucker punch, okay? One is Martin Luther from his Letters of Spiritual Counsel. Here's what he writes. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. 
I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I will be also. Another classic example of this is from Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure you all have heard it. It's been quoted from this pulpit I know many times, but let me give it to you again. It's Christian in his battle with Apollyon. And Apollyon says, picturing the devil, Apollyon is the devil. You have already been unfaithful in your service to him, Christian. Christian responds, where have I been unfaithful to him, Apollyon? I'm going to update the language for you, brothers and sisters. If you want to read it in its original vowel ditzed, you may go ahead and do that, but I'm going to update it. Apollyon responds where he's been unfaithful, where Christian's been unfaithful. He said, you did faint when you first became a Christian, when you were almost choked in the gulf of despond. You did attempt wrong ways to be rid of your burden. Remember that? You tried to work for your own salvation at one point. You tried to prop up your works. And remember, you fell before you even got out of the gate. He goes on. When you should have stayed till your prince had taken off your burden, you went ahead and tried to get it off yourself. Also, you sinfully slept and lost your choice thing. He was lazy, spiritually lazy. You didn't watch as you ought to. He goes on. You also were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. Remember how fearful and unbelieving and lack of, the lack of courage you had? And then finally... When you do talk of your journey and what you have heard and seen, you are inwardly desirous of glory from other people. You really want them to think you're some kind of Christian. So he props all this up at him, throws it all on him. You tried to work for your salvation. You were lazy. You were fearful and unbelieving. You crave the praise of men. Here's how Christian responds, playing rope-a-dope with him. All this is true and much more which you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possess me in your country, for there I suck them in. And I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. Apollyon responds, then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage. rope dope See, don't try to prop up your righteousness before the devil. Or when accusations come. Don't try to prop it up. That's all you're doing is setting yourself up for depression. Don't prop it up. Acknowledge it. And in fact, more so. Because your hope is not fundamentally in the fact that you have been or have not been righteous. But in fact that Jesus has been righteous for you. So accusation is a very real cause of depression. Second one. Or third one. Isolation, accusation, third, recollection, recollection. We see this in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What things do you remember? He says, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What's he focusing on? What is he remembering? He's remembering Times of spiritual exuberation. He's remembering the glory days. When he used to lead God's people to celebrate 
in the house of God and worship God with glad shouts and songs of praise. He's remembering the Passion Conference or whatever particular spiritual high was for some of the older folks in the 70s, which I'm not sure what. Yes, no, no. Jesus Movement, Keith Green Concert. <laughs> I knew if I waited long enough, I'd get, I'd get it from somebody. So whatever, you look back on your life and there are seasons of great spiritual energy and great joy and great exuberation. You start to focus on all those times. Then you look at your life now. All I do is work a job, raise a family, seek to be a faithful Christian, da-da-da-da-da. And it doesn't seem quite so enthusiastic. It doesn't seem quite so glorious. You know, that's the way it was for Elijah. Remember what Pastor Sam has been bringing us through on Sunday evenings is Elijah was on Mount Carmel, big spiritual experience. You can't beat that. I mean, God sent fire down for the guy. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. He's standing there, and he's like, yeah, guys, let's watch. Glory. Let's watch it. Go ahead. What a great scene. The whole contest that takes place. And he's there, and he's like, that's awesome. Me, Elijah, little prayer, call down, boom, fire. God answers my prayer, shows that he's really God, humbles everybody. Talk about a spiritual experience, something that we will never have on this side of the grave. But here we, here we see this, and then the next chapter, he's under a juniper tree all depressed. Whining, crying, upset, depressed. Well, one thing we learn is that this can happen. <laughs> you can go from high, low, within 24 hours even. I mean, very quickly. And choosing to dwell on what, imagine Elijah choosing to dwell on what he just experienced. And now he's here. I mean, if he chose to dwell on that spiritual experience, he's going to get more and more depressed. What have I done now? To, deserve, to get here when I was just here. So recollection can do it too. Focusing on things that you ought not to focus on too much. Doesn't mean you shouldn't thank them and remember them and be thankful for them uh, before God and all the things that he did in your heart and life through them. I wouldn't want to do that at all. That'd be, that'd be wrong. But suffice it to say, what the psalmist is doing here is he is focusing on those things and it's perhaps contributing to his downcastness. So isolation, accusation, recollection. Here's another one. Deprivation. Deprivation. Two verses. Look at the beginning of verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. My tears have been my food day and night. Now, it would be that the only commentator that I consulted that, that actually pointed this out would be a, a former doctor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he points out here that the psalmist is not eating or sleeping. My tears have been my food. Well, if that's been his food, he's not eating other food. And if his tears have been his food day and night, he's, he's not sleeping well. Look at verse 8 in the middle. He says, at night his song is with me. We'll get to that in a minute. But 
if his tears have been his food day and night, he's not sleeping well, he's not eating well. And this is a very real, a real, can be a real contributor to our, to our spiritual depression or our, or our sense of dryness in our walk with the Lord is not eating or sleeping, not getting enough sleep or not eating well. God has made you as a composite being. You are not just a soul. You are a body. And your body, according to Proverbs, impacts the condition of your soul. And your soul impacts the condition of your body. And there is a a weaving together of soul and body by the way God has made us. And so when we don't eat well, when we don't take care of our bodies, when we don't get enough sleep, we're sitting ducks for all sorts of dryness and discouragement. And so we need to take that into account in our theology and not get so super spiritual that we think that everything's fixed with moral exhortation. Everything's not fixed with moral exhortation. Sometimes everything's fixed with a good nap. Sometimes everything's fixed with a meal. And so Tim Keller gives a great illustration of this. He said that he was preaching for, you know, a six to eight week period of time where every week when he stood up and preached, he just was, he had these accusations in his, in his mind of this is worthless. Why are you doing this? No one's going to believe you. Why are you standing up week in and week out and preaching this? Quit it. For like eight weeks, just dry, preaching dry. And just these accusations. And he talked it over with his wife, Kathy. And he said, Kathy, what could be the cause of all this? And Kathy said, well, you're probably not praying enough. You're not praying enough. You're not studying hard enough. You should be studying and praying more. Turned out, after a couple months of this, he just realized that he was incredibly tired, overworked, stressed, tired, and it was weighing on his spirit. And then when he distanced himself a little bit, took a little bit of a vacation, got some sleep, ate well, came back, lo and behold, no more accusation. No more sense of worthlessness. No more. And his point was the body and the soul working together and impacting each other. So we just need to be sensitive to that. It could be very much a physical issue and not a spiritual issue at all. So deprivation can contribute to it. And finally, fifth potential cause, isolation, accusation, recollection, deprivation, disillusion, disillusion. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. That should give echoes to the book of Job. What the psalmist is saying here is, God, it seems that wave after wave after wave just keeps coming. Do you ever feel that way as a Christian? Tire gets blown out, come home, kids are a mess. Next day, something goes incredibly sour at work. One thing after another, wave after wave after wave after wave, it comes and comes and comes. And we hear the old saying, when it rains, it pours. And these waves keep breaking, and the psalmist is saying, look, all your breakers and all your waves are just washing over me at once. And he tells the Lord that, and he's become disillusioned at the events of life. His circumstances have absorbed his gaze. He said, I've, I've committed my life to you, and my life has fallen apart. What gives? Just imagine if, you, if your life had fallen apart and you hadn't committed your life to him. 
then what would it be? Listen, the Bible is gut real, all right? If you have some picture of Christianity that it's all rosy and that you should expect nothing but easy paths as soon as you commit your life to Christ, get ready. All of God's waves and breakers are going to wash over you. For your good, but it will be difficult. And that if we're not careful, if, we're, if we get so focused on our circumstances, that disillusionment can really set in. And we can get immensely discouraged and dry by looking at all the things that are going, quote, unquote, wrong in our lives. And we start judging God's providence and dealings with us on the basis of our wisdom, which is never a good idea. So those are five potential general causes. I realize even in preaching a sermon like this with so many saints that have struggled through this, that it can tend to be like I'm, simp- I'm simplifying the condition. I am not. Hear me. This is not an easy diagnosis. It's not an easy condition to treat. It can, there could be multiple layers and multiple, multiple contributing factors that I'm not even talking about. But these are the five that I see in the psalm. Isolation, accusation, recollection, deprivation, disillusion. Think about it. Have some of those things contributed to some of your periods of spiritual dryness? I know they have to me. I can, I, can, I can see where all of those things at one time or another have contributed to a drought in my life spiritually, whether it be isolating myself, whether it be the accusations of Satan, whether it be recalling the glory days, whether it be depriving myself of something that God has told me I need, or whether it's just being overwhelmed by life circumstances. All of those things can contribute to our spiritual dryness. But how do we cure it? And this is where I want us to conclude. How do, what does this psalm teach us about the cure for spiritual depression, for spiritual dryness? And I see four things that the psalm teaches us about curing, applying the cure to our spiritual drought. But let me just say this before I get to the four things very quickly. The world is incredibly reductionistic when it comes to treating dryness or depression in people's lives. It's incredibly reductionistic. And we as a church can be reductionistic if we're not careful. By reductionistic, I just mean taking, looking at all of the, looking at the condition and applying a one-for-all solution to it. For instance, some people will say, look, in, in the world out there, you're purely a physical being. You have no soul. So medicate. That's the path. If, you're, if it's a purely physical condition, the solution is medicine. And I'm not beating up on that. It may very well be. But it's, that's not the only factor. Or we in the church can say all spiritual depression is the result of a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue. So what you need is truth. So we're going to give you truth, and you're going to swallow truth, and that's going to, that may be, but that's not it. You're more than just a soul. Okay? Or it could be emotional. So what you need is counseling, when in fact, all those may be involved, physical, spiritual, and emotional. And we need to be sensitive to all that and not reduce the cure to any one of those. And I think what you're going to see in Psalm 42 is a beautifully well-rounded portrait of our healing in this particular condition. 
So let me give them to you. Number one, here's the first thing. Pour out your soul to God. Pour out your soul to God. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. It literally means taking all of it and dumping it on God. Is that irreverent to you? Or is that totally consistent with what God calls you to be as a human being? That is totally consistent with all the Psalms. The Psalms is one big book of people gushing on God. That's what it is. God can handle it. His shoulders are broad enough. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't already know or he hasn't heard before. So pour out your soul. This whole psalm is doing that. The whole psalm is a pouring out of a soul who is dry. If you don't feel anything, talk to God about that. Tell him what you're feeling. Tell him how you're feeling. Tell him that you miss him. What do you think that will do for his heart? Tell him that you want to be near him. Tell him that you're, you miss his absence. You wish he was closer. You don't sense that things are okay. So pour it out. Tell him what you're struggling with. Tell him what you miss. Tell him what you've been experiencing. That's what this psalmist is doing. He's telling God about his tears, about what his nights are like. He's telling Psalm about God about what he used to do. He's talking to God about how he feels about what his providence is doing to him. All that. Pour out your soul to God. That's the first thing. Lay it out there. Number two, analyze your hopes. Analyze your hopes. Look at verses 5 and 11. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He says that in verse 5, and then he repeats himself in verse 11. Who's he talking to there? God? No. He is transferred from talking to God to talking to himself. He looks at himself, and he says, why are you so upset? Why are you cast down? And then he says, hope in God. Now, what's the relationship there? Why are you cast down, hope in God? Could it be that he's cast down because he's been putting his hopes in some things that are letting him down? That's what I mean by analyzing your hopes. Ask yourself, what is it that you're looking to for security? What is it that you're looking to to deliver you from your problems? If that's letting you down, it's supposed to, if it's not God. So times of spiritual dryness are times for us to step back and ask, what are we hoping in? What do we really want more than God? And it gives us an opportunity to analyze what we are looking to to save us functionally. Not just in our head, but day in, day out, what am I looking to to deliver me from my distress, from my difficulties, from my dryness? When, I, when, a, when drought sets in and I feel depressed, what do I go to? TV? Bottle? Endless socializing? Whatever. Golf? 
It's not going to cure it if it's spiritual dryness. It's not going to cure it. Study, frantic work, frantic play. We need to analyze our hope, step back. What am I hoping in? And remind ourselves that ultimately our hope has to be in God. Number three, pour out your soul, analyze your hopes. Remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. This is what the psalmist does in verse 6. He says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. I remember you. I remember what you're like. And how are you, what are you like? Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. When he looks out over Mark Redfern's life and commands something for the day, he says, love to Mark Redfern. And to you, if you're a Christian, commands love to you, commands it, love to that person. may not always look like it, but it's love, 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 love. So we remember God's grace. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He's thinking about what God, how God has dealt with him what God has promised to him, and he's turned it into a song. This this psalm is to be sung. It was sung in Israel. How do we know that? Psalm 42, to the choir master. Sing your sorrows. Sing to God in the midst of your darkness. And He remembers the steadfast love of God for him, and he turns that into a song that he sings. So we don't just remember the grace of God by reminding ourselves of who God is. We do do that. But we we sing to him. Sing to him. Sing to him in your house. Sing to him here as we gather. You say, I don't feel like singing. Sing to him. And remember his grace and his goodness to you. Finally, preach to your heart. Preach to your heart. So we got pour out your soul, analyze your hopes, remember God's grace, and then preach to your heart. That's what he's doing in verses 5 and 11. He is preaching to himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He's preaching a sermon to himself. He's not praying to God. He's talking to himself. And notice how real he is here. This is real. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He doesn't say, hope in God, for I do praise him. That'd be denial. He's not doing that right now. (laughs) That'd be denial. He doesn't say, I do praise him. Nor does he say, I will never praise him. That'd be despair and despondency. He says, I will praise him. God will bring me out of this. And that's the kind of things we need to be preaching to ourselves. This is a season for my good. God will bring me out. He will not abandon me. How do you know he will not abandon you? Because Jesus fulfilled Psalm 42. He was the one who said, I thirst. When he went to the brook of God as a panting deer, it was all dry on the cross. Nothing there. Listen to this as from the mouth of your Savior. My tears have been my food day and night. 
while they continually say to me, where is your God? On the cross, listen to this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Jesus lost God even when he trusted him. He was thirsty for God and he was abandoned by God on the cross. And he was abandoned so that you would never have to be. So that in your times of spiritual drought, you can know for sure it's not punishment. Because God doesn't play double jeopardy. It's certain it's not punishment. It may be discipline. It is discipline. It may be training. It may be loving, fatherly correction. But it's never punishment. It's never condemnation. You can know for certain that you will never, ever, ever be lost. You will never, ever be abandoned by God in your spiritual drought because Jesus already went down for you and was. So let me say a word to you who are perhaps on the fringes of the Christian faith or don't know if you're a Christian. Maybe you came in here this morning and and you are experiencing a lot of these things. You're experiencing this kind of spiritual dryness and all that. And this is a loving call of God to you to stop hoping in things other than him and stop looking to other things other than him. It's a call to you. You will continue to be dry. You will continue to struggle. You will continue to have perhaps depression. Until you come to Jesus. So it's actually a loving call of Jesus for him, for you to come to him. And I would encourage you to do that. Let me close. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to use the prayers of uh, Scotty Smith, who many of you read as a result of Pastor Keith's emails. But this is one based on this psalm. So um, I'm going to read part of it as we pray. I'm going to use it as our prayer together as we close. So let's pray. Kind-hearted Father, our heart goes out today, and our prayers reach up on behalf of those who struggle with various expressions of discouragement. We have friends who live all along the axis of mild melancholy to the relentless pangs of suicidal depression. Father of mercies, teach us how to love in the dark, disconnected places. Continue to rescue us from naive and inadequate views of depression. It's not as simple of a condition as I used to think. We grieve the ways we used to counsel the depressed, encouraging and exhorting them just to run to Jesus and get over it. Father, for our friends who are struggling, keep them wrecked, but yet, who are struggling, but yet, for no other reason than living with a graceless, gospelless heart. We pray that you would keep them restless and disturbed until they rest in the finished work of Christ. May they despair of their unrighteousness and their self-righteousness until they're driven to the righteousness that only comes from faith in Jesus. Father, for our friends who suffer with depression generated by anatomical anomalies, lead them to good physicians and the right kind of medical care. Grant us the grace we need to be patient and understanding of the complexities involved in their illness and care. 
The risk of abusing meds is always there. This can be a very difficult and long journey. Give us your compassion and strength. Father, for our friends who suffer from depression fueled by demonic influence, grant us wisdom and courage as we enter the warfare for their souls. Satan, our fury-filled foal, is relentless, relentless and ruthless. His condemning, blaming, and shaming voice is enough to generate deep despair and thoughts of self-destruction. Equip us with the arsenal of the gospel as we wrestle in prayer and walk with our targeted friends. How we long for the day of no more darkness, depression, and despair. Until that day, we put our hope in you, our loving Savior and faithful God. We pray in Jesus' compassionate name. Amen.